This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a Canadian immigration law podcast. I'm Stephen Murens. On today's episode, we are discussing what I think may be one of the most significant Federal Court of Canada decisions, at least in 2022, involving work permit applications. And for those not familiar with the work permit application process, I think it's important in order to fully understand and follow this episode for me to provide a quick overview of how Canada's Temporary Foreign Worker Program works. The Temporary Foreign Worker Program is Canada's largest work permit program, although there are many others. So in the Temporary Foreign Worker Program, a company must first obtain what is, something that is called a Labor Market Impact Assessment, or an LMIA, from a government department called Service Canada. The foreign worker is not really involved in this part of the process, and it's a company application to Service Canada to show that the entry of a foreign national will have a neutral or positive impact on Canada's labor market. As part of this application, the company has to show that the job offer that they're providing is genuous, genuine, that the employer has a legitimate business, uh, that the company can afford to pay the foreign worker, and other factors. Once that company has obtained a positive LMIA, the prospective worker, the foreign national, can apply for a work permit. The foreign worker's application is submitted to Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada, a different government department from the government department that issues the LMIA to the company. Now, in the case that we are discussing today, Jandu v. Canada, several applicants from India were refused work permits to be truck drivers in Canada. About half of the workers were banned for misrepresentation or lying in their application. Now, the reason for the work permit refusals and the misrepresentation findings was that the 
Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada visa officer determined that the job offers were not genuine and the visa offer officer requested as part of their assessment that the work permit applicant from India provide tax documents about the Canadian business, a list of the Canadian business's suppliers, including the Canadian business's contracts, as well as uh, contracts with customers, all sorts of documentation that, as we'll discuss in this episode, arguably is not reasonable to expect that a work permit applicant in India would have all this information and documentation from the Canadian company. Now, in setting aside the decision, Justice Diner made several key findings, including that it was unreasonable for Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada to essentially reassess the same factors about whether the job offer was genuine that the Canadian business already had assessed by Service Canada in their LMIA application without the visa officer at least communicating with Service Canada as to their decision. And Justice Diner used the analogy of two ships passing in the night that belong to the same government department. The second finding that Justice Diner made was, as what I alluded to earlier, that it was unreasonable to expect prospective foreign workers in India to provide this level of documentation about a Canadian business and that these questions should have been directed to the company, not the visa officer. Now, Diana and I are joined today by Rafina Rashid and Yelena Urosovic of Rashid Urosovic LLP, the two lawyers who represented the refused applicants before the federal court. Both lawyers previously worked for the federal government's Department of Justice, and Rafina appeared on a previous Borderlines podcast episode where she discussed what working at the Department of Justice was like and her transition from being a Department of Justice lawyer to working in private practice. Uh, Rashid, uh, Rafina and um, Yelena can be reached at info at rulaw.ca, I-N-F-O at R-U-L-A-W dot C-A. Once again, if you like the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. The cases that ended up going to hearing were a group of six um, work permit applications that that were refused. Um, So different applicants, but the same Canadian employer. Our trucking company that was offering these applicants um, uh, LMIA-based positions, labor market impact assessments were obtained um, actually for 80 positions, eight zero. And it was over the course of five different LMIA applications. So even these six applicants were not based on the same LMIA. Some of them were based on the same, but I think overall there were three um, LMIAs underlying the job offers. Um, so these were six, six applicants um, who um, challenged the refusals of their work permit actions. Three were refused on the basis of um, submitting a non-genuine job offer, um, so not sort of meeting the eligibility requirements for the work permits. And the other three were um, uh, refused on misrepresentation, so admissibility uh, concerns 
for providing this non-genuine job offer. Um, the, the job offers were the same in all six um, applications. The differences were that some employees, pr uh, prospective employees would be headed for the Ontario branch of the trucking company and others to um, the Nova Scotia branch. However, there was no correlation between mm. uh, the inadmissibility of the ones refused for misrepresentation versus the ones refused for non-genuine job offers. It, it wasn't as if the Ontario ones were all misrepresentation and Nova Scotia ones were all um, um, ineligible or, or I guess non-genuine job offers. Um, so um, it was these, uh, the reasoning of um, IRCC was that the employer could not uh, meet the requirements of the job offers, could not pay these prospective employees, did not have a reasonable business plan, uh, growth business growth plan, because as I said, it was there was a total of 80 positions that Service Canada approved for in the LMIAs, and these were six of the 80. Um, as background, about 30 had been approved already. So 30 workers had been issued work permits. So this, this type of assessment um, from IRCC's part um, only started after almost half of the, the work permits had already been issued. Um, so what, um, what the position was of IRCC is that the employer did not demonstrate that they would be able to pay these workers. Um, and this was based on um, documents that were submitted on behalf of the employer by um, the consultant consultants who, who were representing the employer and the employees. Um, and these were financial documents and um, registrated corporate corporation documents, um, some invoices from suppliers and from, um, from uh, customers. Um, IRCC looked at all of these documents and sort of did um, an analysis, a de novo analysis, I would say, about the employer's ability to pay these workers without getting in touch with the employer directly. Um, the, all of the requests were submitted to the workers and not to all of the workers. I think we only had about um, two um, requests. And Rafina, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think out of the six cases, only two of the applicants received um, a request for these financial documents. Um, so the assessment was based on the financial documents, which ultimately were provided by the employer, but the employer was never directly contacted uh, with an opportunity to, you know, explain or um, specifically notified about concerns. And I would say more importantly, um, Service Canada was never contacted um, to discuss these five LMIAs that were approved for these positions. So that, that's sort of a long-winded summary of, of hopefully some of the main facts. Mm -hmm. So the not all of them got... So of the six who uh, you represented in the judicial review, did they all get the uh, document request that was an Annex A of the decision, the procedural fairness letter? No, only two out of six got it. Okay. And were the rest just interviewed or some didn't even get interviewed? Uh, I believe all of these six were interviewed. Um, so they each would have gotten the interview request. Mm. Um, but uh, two, two got the procedural fairness letter. And there was a response, a slightly different response submitted for each. Uh, because the timing of it was such that 
when the first uh, procedural fairness request came in, um, the consultants representing the applicant put together these documents and sort of submitted a, a, a request with a cover, um, a response with a cover letter to IRCC, thinking, you know, it's a one-off, we'll deal with it. When the second one trickled in, they thought, okay, let's re hmm. rework the response we submitted with some additional details and submitted. And then when others, so these are cases that were not included in the litigation, but other applicants started receiving uh, similar procedural fairness letters. And that's actually when we came on board. So we sort of had two sets of cases running alongside. One were the procedural fairness responses um, because we were retained for that. And then the other set of cases was this litigation going to the federal court. Mm. Um, I think that that's a good segue for me. I find that these cases are quite fascinating in this issue that they raise. It's sort of an ethical quandary for counsel in terms of responding to a procedural fairness letter that is ostensibly directed to the applicant, but asking for what would be confidential information only in the hands of the employer. Um, and I've always felt that <laughs> Those are challenging questions. I mean, especially um, the situation where I face this the most is when it's a prospective caregiver and an employer is being asked to provide financial documents. And clearly these are documents that the employer would not wish to share. Mm -hmm. But you're being like the, the, the inquiry is being directed at the applicant. This is not an LMIA application, which is like the employer is inarguably a party to that LMIA application, but in the context of the work permit, um, when I've submitted those documents, I've been clear, like these documents are being shared with you by the employer. You're in a joint retainer, perhaps with the employer and the employee. I'm sharing these, but I am not able to share them with the applicant whose application this is. So it already gives rise to this uh, conflict that you're in where you're providing information that would be the basis to refuse the application that the applicant is not aware of. And so I just kind of wanted to start a bit of a discussion around this and what that means in terms of the, the position that that puts counsel into um, when you're acting in a joint retainer. I've silenced everyone with that question. <laughs> <laughs> I've always just felt really bizarre about it because like, uh, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it, it is a conflict in some ways. It, it's a, it's a challenging situation to be in. And, and just thinking about these cases in particular. Um, so the first two cases, the, the ones that did get the procedural fairness letter and that response from the consultant was actually uploaded through their representative's portal um, in the tab that IRCC opened up. And then, you know, after the first one, the second one came in and I guess the consultants thought, uh oh, you know, is this a pattern happening here? Mm -hmm. So then they they sent the employer to another lawyer um, who who is mentioned actually um, in, in the decision because he provided a letter uh, on behalf of the employer. And at that point, it, it became a little bit more apparent that, you know, these are not really the types of documents that should be submitted through the representative's portal on behalf of the applicants. This is not something that the employer should be sharing with the clients because IRCC is requesting sensitive financial information mm -hmm. and, and not only sensitive financial information, but extensive information about current employees, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. which, 
you know, Rafina and I sort of had to decide, do we make an argument in the federal court about this? Uh, do we point back to IRCC's own guidance about how, no, you shouldn't be asking for SIN yeah. numbers of Canadian citizens and, exactly. and, and, you know, even temporary workers. But this is exactly what they were requesting. Mm. In the response to the procedural fairness letters that we we did respond to on behalf of other workers, we specified in our submissions that this is a breach of the Privacy Act in requesting this information through the applicants. And those are in the PF submissions, but because it was already done on these cases, it didn't see, it seemed like a moot point now to be making this argument before the court. Um, For sure. And I do think that, I mean, part of the reason that I'm saying it's a conflict is because, especially when you're looking at financial documents that appear to be quite solid, um, as a representative for the applicant, you kind of feel like you're just taking the path of least resistance. Like they're asking for this documentation. This documentation shows a, you know, um, a functional business that's working well. You provide the documentation. But then when it starts getting into things like genuineness assessments and potential allegations for misrepresentation, it does feel like it's really put counsel into this bind of um, making misrepresentations that are not visible to the applicant, but for which they would bear the consequences. This underlines the problem with the lack of communication between the government departments that are involved in this process. Yeah. Because the assessment of the viability of the company to offer these uh, positions was already assessed. Yeah, so if IRCC, as we argued, in court, if IRCC had a problem with the employer, the applicants are not the conducted conduit in which to get this information. Go speak to your fellow government department sure. who and the officer who already assessed these LMIA applications and ask them what their thought process was when they, uh, you know, approved all of these LMIA applications. Well, Rafina, I think that that's exactly it. And I think, unfortunately, there has been this tension built into the litigation because of all of that material around how, um, you know, there's a shared responsibility over doing these genuineness assessments. And there has been so many, there has been so much case law about the fact that just because there's an LMIA approval doesn't mean that the immigration department can't look behind it. But this case is very, very clear about the fact that there are limits to that. And I think that the idea of like a fulsome uh, reassessment of the financial bona fides of the employer, that this is really not the place for that. And to me, that was one of the most exciting components of this decision, because I don't feel like um, previous decisions on this have done any balancing in terms of what this distinct roles are between the various government departments. No, and the analogy to the ships was uh, actually read at the conference on Friday. Did Justice Steiner just come up with that? Or did you and your memorandum of argument do the the two ships passing in the night comparison? No, he, he did the two ships. We, that was we, him? Had a, we had a whole bunch of other ones. <laughs> so, at the so, hearing, at the hearing yeah. there were a lot of analogies that were put to the court, but Justice Steiner came up with his own for the decision. Mm. Yeah, that the absence of communication between ESDC and IRCC is akin to two ships passing in the night. Um, and I agree with Deanna, and I'm sure you two have the same uh, opinion that it's probably as far as the the like 
legacy or where this case gets cited, it's that um, there does need to be, it seems, more coordination between IRCC and ESDC when IRCC essentially just reassesses mm. um, what ESDC has already decided. Well, yeah. it, it, it makes you question, why does the employer need to spend $1,000 processing fee to have one government department assess its viability and then only to have another government department come to the contrary conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. To me, it's really just a matter of like, who's a party to which application. And I think fundamentally the idea of basically third partying the employer in an applicant's application where there are consequences that can rise to the level of misrepresentation based on submissions to which they may not have been made privy. Like it's really, it really brings to the fore the fact that this is the inappropriate venue for that to be occurring. Like I understand if there's something in the job offer that bumps for the IRCC officer and they say you don't have the right credentials, that's still something that's within the domain of the work permit application that they can assess within the context of the applicant's application. But it's something far different from going back and conducting a de novo assessment of the LMIA application uh, without, without actually having the employer be a genuine party to that application. And without contacting the first department that considered the application and all of the documents. Um, it really, if if you if you look at and and I'm not actually sure how much this comes out in the decision. I I think it does a little bit, but it was probably stronger in our arguments. As, as a starting point, IRCC here took the LMIA exempt regulations as the authority under which to do this assessment and to refuse the mm. application. And my argument was, and I try to really emphasize it in oral submissions, I said, starting with this legal error, that it just, the house of cards crumbles. It, you know, there's there's no basis on which this decision can be found reasonable when they weren't even operating on the proper regulations, the proper legislative provisions. Uh, and then we took the court into the different and um, IRCC, like the policy manuals, uh, which outlined the process in quite a different way. And actually yeah. the LMIA um, required one. So the, the one that is LMIA based, it doesn't even have this step of assess the job offer, you know, assess the, the viability of the company, look at the, the factors that are pertaining to the employer. So that, that whole piece is missing. And yeah. there weren't the case law that we found. It wasn't really on point because, the, the, as you say, it's it's about, you know, do you have the language skills? Do you have yeah, the education, exactly. the work experience? And that's very different. We never would take the position that IRCC cannot assess that because that is specific to the applicant. Yeah. And of course, it's part, part of the assessment. But when it comes down to the employer, they need to do a little bit more rather than just, uh, you know, do their own assessment of, of the employer's eligibility and abilities to, to fulfill the job offer. Yeah, for sure. I do find the regulations are pretty confusing, uh, I must say, like, and I, I, I'm not sure, um, like when I looked, um, I, I've actually got a, a, another case that's currently before the court, and I, I was able to use this case, so it was extremely timely for me in, in my submissions, but I'm, I find that the policy 
there's a distance between the policy and what the regulation actually says. Like when, because I understand that the that the policy, or sorry, that the regulation lays out a different process, but the regulation still does bring in that kind of that genuineness assessment, although in a different way. I don't know if you can sort of talk through, even just in a general way, the distinction between the actual what the law says in terms of what the department is supposed to be doing. And what the, um, you know, in an LMIA based versus an LMIA exempt, because I do think that it's, I don't know if you agree that it seems like it's a bit different than what the policy guidance is. I, I couldn't agree more. It, and actually reading the regulation, it's funny because when Rufina and I were preparing, we were reading the, the regulation out loud and sort of cutting it up and figuring out what does what does this mean and what is the qualifier for because it's written in such a way where you when you're trying to understand what it means you can't quite understand what the regulation is saying and this yeah. is this is the submission that we made to justice diner as well i read out the regulation and I, and i said it's not clear whether it's IRCC or ESDC that's responsible. It sounds like they should be working together yeah. um, because the regulation says officer on, on the one hand, but ESDC on the other hand. So, okay, officer presumably is applying to IRCC, but the way that it's all set up, it's just, it's quite confusing to begin with. Yeah, um, and then sure. of course, Justice Diner said, said to us that you know he can't rewrite the law which obviously we agree with but going going to the policy it 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 doesn't although it clarifies it in a certain way it doesn't clarify it to the extent that um case law has interpreted it and ircc is interpreting it because yeah. as, as i've mentioned before the steps that a processing officer is supposed to take in an lmi exempt work permit application specifically includes assessing the employer and the employer's abilities. And that's because that hasn't been done by yeah. another officer, right? Whereas the steps for an LMIA-based application don't include any of that. So it's, it's an interesting gap. Yeah. yeah. And but very, I just, and a very important one. Yeah, for sure. It's just, I keep going back through the regulations and it, because I think what we're talking about is it's that subsection five um, where they talk about assessing the genuineness of the job offer. Clearly, it's excluded the subsection five assessment, but then it's kind of brought back in in the end of the day. The regulations say that they can, that they should consider subsection five when determining the work permit. It doesn't seem to me that it fully exempts that from being part of the function when the IRCC assesses the job offer, even on an LMIA-based application. I mean, I don't think Diner's saying it can't be looked at by, no. by IRCC, just that it has to be coordinated with Service Canada. But what you're raising now is an interesting question in that, like, in an LMIA-exempt work permit, if where would this assessment get done? And we haven't, so why don't I just, we, I want to take like a minute to just read what was in the request for documents. Mm. Um, because I think that, I mean, to me it's, and I think we discussed this briefly on the last podcast, Deanna, when we previewed this episode is imagine if you go to a job offer or job interview <laughs> and at the end of the interview, they're like, okay, we'd like to offer you the job. And as the interviewee, you say, okay, great. By the way, can you provide me with a copy? And this is what IRCC requested of your business registration, 
your most recent unaudited financial statements, three years of your uh, tax filings with the Canada Revenue Agency, proof that you've paid employment insurance for all of your employees. And then I'd also like a list of your major customers and all your sales contracts and accounts receivable with them. And the same for your suppliers as well, right? Like you'd never ask that at the end of a, you'd never get the job. It's almost, you know, suspect if the employer would ever give it. And Um, it's not like these are interviews for CEOs who would have had to look at these sorts of things over due diligence. Like uh, that's not the level of employee that's being hired. So, so, so yeah, Um, I just, I feel like, um, I think that it's a fantastic decision. I feel like um, the one thing that I was disappointed to see was that it wasn't found to be a procedural fairness issue that, um, that the applicants really were not able to respond in a meaningful way, because to me, it is a, it's a clear, it like doesn't matter how detailed the letter is, how you're conducting an interview. The fact that there are consequences that could go to the level of, of a misrepresentation allegation, and you couldn't possibly be making these types of representations on behalf of a prospective employer. To me, that is a fairness issue. And and you couldn't possibly be anticipating the type of analysis that IRCC did. And and I think this this was something that probably weighed heavily in in our favor in terms of, you know, we sort of we had a feeling that, you know, these would be struck down as unreasonable because the the analysis, it just does not make any sense. It's not responsive to the documents. It's, you know, the analogy I used in the in the hearing was it's comparing apples and oranges because it's looking at one tax year versus the number of employees two years later so that the math just didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how can, and even as an employer trying to respond, let's, let's say, you know, an employer is given the opportunity and there wasn't a breach of procedural fairness. How is an employer supposed to anticipate this kind of an analysis? Mm. It, that that's something that to me stood out as as just something that you know it's very difficult to advise clients in situations like this. But okay, these are the documents that they're asking for. But what is it that they're really getting at? Um, yes, it's the you know genuineness of the job offer, whether you're able to fulfill these conditions. But how do you demonstrate? based on you know your your operations from three years ago and you're growing the company exponentially like just to put this put this in context for you this company grew 230 percent based on you know industry standards and sort of the like they made the news for this because they grew so much and especially Mm -hmm. you know during the pandemic but how do you how do you demonstrate that in a procedural fairness response going forward when they're asking you for documents going backwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Without like producing a business plan and something that sort of like, a, uh, it ends up becoming more like a material in the nature of what you would submit for, um, you know, an investor application mm. to show that this is a viable business plan going forward, talking about future funds and what resources you might have. Or what was discussed in the LMIA um, uh, Mm -hmm. interview with with the ESTC officer. Right. And really the the, sort of the the basis for refusal was this is not a reasonable business plan, says IRCC. Well, IRCC, how do you assess a business plan without being presented with a business plan? You didn't ask for a business plan. You asked for three years of tax filings. Right. 
I wonder whether or not for either of you, um, going through this case would change the way that you would act if a future client showed up with the request for financial documents directed at the employer employee. No doubt. Uh, and I mean, it, it changed because, you know, having these refusals while at the same time having the procedural fairness letters for other workers we, I mean, it sort of, it sort of gave us the insight as to what IRCC was thinking. Mm -hmm. So we were able to, in those procedural fairness responses, we were able to address all those issues with yeah. documents, with sworn statements, and um, all of those ended up being approved. Um, so it worked for, you know, a large number of other employees. Mm -hmm. uh, but absolutely, I mean, I have to admit, before, before this case, I, I did not really realize how, how far IRCC can go with their assessment of the employer documents and the analysis that you know, they're trying to do. Because I always thought the LMIA, although not decisive or definitive, has you know, strong evidentiary weight in, in mm -hmm. that type of a situation, right? Like the employer has already been assessed and that's what I've been arguing in all of the other cases that I had. But recently, after this case, I actually started putting in submissions in all of my work permit applications about additional factors, like 200 sub five. And, you know, this is why the employer meets these, um, you know, um, requirements, whereas mm. that's not something that I necessarily was pointing out before. So it, it definitely yeah. changed how I practice. Yeah, um, I find this very interesting because I think I think um, I've certainly I mean, I do mostly the or I, I would say exclusively the litigation side of it. But I would I, I mean, I know having done the solicitor side for years that honestly, um, as I said, from the outset, our prerogative as counsel doing work permit applications is to try and get them to a decision as quickly and efficiently as possible. So I'm not sure that I would have ever had a second thought for just like putting forward the material requested and then trying to make submissions as to why this was sufficient, perhaps, you know, but like, but now I think um, we do, I, I am finding personally that the, that the, that the lengths that um, visa office decision makers are going to with material provided, I just don't have the same comfort level that I would, and this case really does highlight why you might want to exercise a whole lot of caution and maybe even just say, look, um, for me to be making these types of submissions on behalf of an applicant when the material you've requested is not something that they would ever have, um, you know, access to or cannot speak to, um, I, I think that, you know, then making submissions on why, you know, again, it does feel a bit like, um, you know, you might be asking for it to end up in federal court, and that sometimes would be hard to get instructions from your your client in terms of declining to provide that material. But I just, I, it's it, there's a greater tension that definitely arises from. Yeah, from I think it's sort of it's an interesting question. Before this decision, it probably would have been a conversation with the employer about if you don't provide these documents, it's likely going to be refused. Um, whereas now, because of this decision there's at least the ability to push back and say, please ask ESDC to contact the employer 
or at least IRCC to contact the employer directly. Like I think you mentioned, Deanna, they do in the caregiver context. They don't really. I mean, they'll often just ask the caregiver to provide documentations related to the employer. <laughs> and so it's the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I've seen a few where, and I don't know how they decide. I don't do as much caregiver work as you by a long shot, but and only in the judicial review context. There does seem to be, unlike in a standard work permit application, some correspondence and requests that I've seen just in the files that I've JR'd go directly to the employer. Um, but that is one of the, I think will be one of the legacies of the case is at least this form of procedural fairness letter will at least be challengeable or pushed back on. It also does beg the question of how an unrepresented applicant is supposed to maneuver this process. Um, IRCC is making it increasingly difficult for representatives to access whatever application or visa visa offices, decision makers. How is an applicant who's not represented supposed to know that they're supposed to, that these are the arguments and this mm -hmm. is the information that IRCC is looking for? Um, so yeah. it's just another reason why they should be going to the employer to get this information. Mm -hmm. You yeah, almost sort of were. I wonder if you were the employer, if it was, if like someone came. Like it, it's not inconceivable that a truck driving company would look at this as somebody in a different country saying, please send me copies of all your sales contracts and purchase contracts as wondering, like, is this some form of like weird corporate espionage? Like, is the guy actually working for a competitor? Um, I don't know how, like you mentioned, someone who's self-represented where there's no, you know, theoretical, I mean, I know they're a lawyer, so they're not really a third, an independent third party. But at least at that point, someone who may even have a joint retainer, or there is some third party to navigate and explain what is being asked for, how information will be presented. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it, I imagine it could go one of two ways. Either the employee says, I can't get these documents from my employer. And then there could theoretically be an A16 refusal for failure to provide the documents required. Um, or it could be the other way where the employee does manage to get those documents for the employer and provides them. And then at that point, there's less of the there's less ability to argue lack of procedural fairness because they've been provided by the applicant. So the ability to say that they they weren't privy to that information, that they that they didn't understand. I mean, again, it still is there's still the the point of whether or not they should have been able to answer to the financial viability of the employer. Um, but part of the argument is lost in the sense that that documentation would at least appear to have come through them as opposed to through a third party. And I think that's what Justice Diner found when he refused to find a breach of procedural fairness was that, well, they were given a heads up. These were the documents. And, you know, through the other lawyer, they provided some sort of documentation. So they knew that something was amiss in this. It wasn't like they had no notice whatsoever. So, and. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. You're very diplomatic. To me, it's Procedurally like it has fair to be with a an meaningful opportunity to respond, not just an opportunity work to respond, you know? Um, um, so yeah, I, I, to me, there, there has to be some, some, some real ability to be able to make substantive submissions. Um, and I, I think responding to something that is not, not known to you, to me. Um, yeah. Anyways. Well, we argued the lack of meaningfulness at the hearing. And I mean, I think when we were preparing our materials, Yelena and I both looked at the, the PF letter and the interview letters and we're just like, well, how does any of this pertain to the individual who is applying for the work permit? It's, how are they supposed to know how to respond to this with regards to the genuineness of their job offer? They've never worked for this employer. Mm -hmm. They have no idea what Canada even looks like. And they're being, I mean, if you were to read the GCMS notes, you would see just how inapplicable the questions were that were being asked of the applicants. There's no way they would be able to answer them given that they've never been here before. Mm -hmm. There's one one question that we haven't really got to, um, in my view, which is the, the distinction between a lack of genuineness and a finding of misrepresentation. So mm -hmm. we sort of went to the, the kind of rule of law question generally. Um, and, um, you know, I don't think that that was really decided in the case in any substantive way. But I, I mean, I think except for this kind of reference to the fact that the same material could in some cases lead to a finding of non-genuineness and other cases lead to a finding of misrepresentation. Um, anyway, I just put that out there. That's obviously a talking point and I find it very curious and just um, an interesting issue that I think there is um, there is a lot of reason to be spending more time and attention on that distinction now, because I think it really has become blurred, especially, and we've talked about this too, especially in our conversations with Raj Sharma, like certain visa offices seem to be leaning more toward um, misrepresentation allegations where in the past, uh, non-genuineness refusal would have, would have sufficed. Um, so just open the floor to any comments on that point in particular. I think that one of the things that worked to our benefit in this case in arguing the unreasonableness of the misrepresentation finding is having the other three cases to compare it to where it was the exact same materials, almost identical questions being asked at the interview and the same decision maker. So how is it that 
on one set of facts and evidence you found no misrepresentation, but on another you you did. Um, so that helped us in the hearing to compare and contrast those those three cases. And I think that was one of the things that one of the reasons why DOJ was fighting us on consolidation um, of the cases because there was this blatant discrepancy. Mm. And it's to me one of the reasons why I'm super glad that it was case managed because I think, again, this, uh, you know, um, <laughs> it's one of the reasons why I would have hoped that this would have been decided on the basis of procedural fairness because it, it seems to me it goes to the, to the content of the duty of fairness because they've always indicated that the duty of fairness is on the low end of the spectrum where you're talking about temporary residence applicants. But when there does seem to be this potentiality for a determination of misrepresentation, the content of the duty of fairness should be far more substantial because the consequences there are severe. Uh, Five-year ban, you know, like it, you know, could truly, unless you're litigating it, it could truly prohibit any future application in reality. So um, the idea of having them side by side, I think would have gone to that um, but also just in terms of the arbitrariness, the capriciousness of the decision um, when you're dealing with the reason, the, the assessment of the reasonableness of decision, um, I think it allowed that analysis to occur because they were sitting side by side. Particularly mm-hmm. in a case like this, where it, it's going back to the employer, right? But those individuals sitting in the interview answering those questions um, how much do they know about the company, about, um, you know, where it operates, how many trucks it has, how much revenue it has? They don't really know anything. They just know that they've been offered a job. So then to make the distinction, the three knew that the job offer was fraudulent and as a result should be inadmissible for five years based on misrepresentation, whereas the other three just you know submitted a non-genuine job offer and are not found inadmissible like the the different there was no basis for that and it was mm-hmm. actually interesting um because justice diner asked this of doj outright okay point me to the reasons in these three cases why those three are found inadmissible for misrepresentation whereas the other three are not mm-hmm. um and I mean, the answer obviously did not satisfy Justice Diner, but it was interesting to listen to because um, it was comments like, you know, I'm showing you a Google map image of this, um, you know, the, the company's location and I don't see any trucks parked there. So where are the trucks? And that was the basis for <laughs> misrepresentation. Wow. It really, I mean, it, you know, the entertainment value was, was something yeah. else. I mean, it's basically like these letters for their misreps basically state, you know, we believe that you may have been the victim of employer fraud. The mm-hmm. consequence of being the victim of employer fraud is a five-year bar on entering Canada. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your interest that you have shown in Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's it's related to that as, you know, in these cases of genuineness versus misrepresentation, like... Mm-hmm. If someone's the victim of something, which I'm not saying was the case here, but it's very it's like, close to mm-hmm. at least it's how it's presented in GCMS. It's should the consequence of being the victim of something be a misrepresentation right. finding? 
especially right. because the motivation to actually pursue something like this through to litigation, um, oftentimes because of the cost of litigation, it's an access to justice issue for individual litigants were it not for the fact that they had a supportive employer would they have pursued the litigation or would the misrepresentation allegation have been allowed to stand because anecdotally whether or not the five-year ban is passed getting any future approval of any kind of a permit once there's been a finding of misrepresentation on a file is like a virtual um <laughs> it's just it's, it's very very hard once that's happened five years or no five years and so um, oftentimes it will mean that the result of being victimized is like kind of a lifetime bar from coming to Canada. And so, um, so, so yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a really good point, Steve. And another interesting uh, part of this is um, how the GCMS notes assessed the representation that they received. So like all of these applicants were assisted by the same um, immigration consultants um, they paid for these work permit applications. They were referred to the consultants by the employer. Um, the consultants also handled the LMIA. I mean, this is sort of the regular co course of business for a lot of, whether it's consultants or lawyers, for a lot of immigration representatives. You start by representing the employer, and then you say to the potential workers, you know, so-and-so can handle your application. Whether the individual pays or the employer pays, it is not mandated, either could pay. But the questions that were asked about um, the consultants, and, and I found it interesting that this is something that Justice Diner decided to include in the decision. It was, it was you know, an interesting discussion that we were having in, in court. He said, well, what's the problem here? What exactly is IRCC questioning? Are they, que so these are registered consultants. Are they questioning the fees? The people didn't pay the same fees. Some paid less, some paid more, and we don't have the necessary context to decide why the price was different. It could be that someone had a previous refusal, so you know the representative is charging more. It could be that they wanted to bring their family members. Like we don't have that context available. But what is it that IRCC was trying to get at? And then by extension, why are the applicants being punished for this? You know, because there there were so many comments about they were represented by the same consultant, they paid this much, they all had the same narrative about being referred to the consultant by the employer. So as Justice Diner said, it sounds like IRCC thought that there was something fishy going on between the employer and the consultants, but there this is not really the proper forum yeah. for you know, investigating that or punishing the applicants for it. It almost makes it seem like the certified tribunal record was incomplete. And I've gotten into this a bit lately on some files with whether emails that officers send on files are part of the certified tribunal record or not. Um, but like, you know, and you've kind of hinted at it, there's the context is missing and that context must exist in writing somewhere. Like. Well, th there's actually an additional <laughs> component here, um, uh, you know, to make matters a little bit more interesting, there were redactions in some mm. of the, the GCMS notes, and the redactions were only partial, so we could tell, 
that there was some sort of reporting happening, that CBSA was involved, that it was something at Halifax airport. So, so we couldn't quite get the full picture because there were redactions. And then we actually, um, we fought the redactions. We wanted DOJ to, uh, to demonstrate to the court that these are, you know, legitimate redactions, that they, sh that, you know, this should not be disclosed in the certified tribunal record. Um, so there was definitely something happening behind the scenes. But the point is, the decisions with all of these comments that are cl clearly targeted at, you know, this behind the scenes that we didn't know about, that it didn't create for a reasonable decision, right? What was the basis on their end for withholding the redactions? Like, did a justice order that they be produced? No, it was a, what's the tip line called, Rafina? Do you remember? Someone reported to a tip line, apparently, mm. and th this information should be um um should not be disclosed we didn't actually end up opposing the motion to maintain the redactions but we insisted that doj bring the motion because up until up until that point we didn't even know what the reason was for keeping for these redactions and there were only in a couple of cases and it, it was kind of interesting because it just goes to show that you know in some cases more is redacted than in others like we could across the the, the different cases we we could put together some of the some of the background which probably should have been redacted in all of all of the gcms notes but some of it was left um, it was unredacted. A program integrity argument that was being made in yeah. terms of why it could or the be tip lines. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. But this, I'd like to go back to the genuineness versus misrepresentation. Like, it just seems more and more, and not only in the work permit context, but also in the sponsorship context, that it when an individual is interviewed and they don't give answers 100% of the time that match up to something in the documentation or what the officer thinks uh, is the norm or how the officer would have acted in that particular situation, then it automatically seems to be triggering a misrepresentation finding. It's not, it's not just that the relationship or the job offer was not genuine. It in addition to that, you've misrepresented, and I, in, I'm unable myself, and I would love your input, of how those two things are connected. Because I had, after this hearing, I had um, a spousal sponsorship where there was a non-genuineness of the relationship and a misrep finding. Was and that an open spousal work permit or PR sponsoring? No, it was um, It was an open uh uh, spouse of an international student mm -hmm. open work permit yeah. application and he he wasn't well prepared for the interview had no idea what to expect was nervous was asked questions like where has your wife visited in Canada since she's been here well, I don't know first of all like he's not going to remember names I can't remember the names of some of the places I went to last December so how, like, how do we as advocates rebut this type of action that's happening by decision makers? I think it's hard. Like we've 
um, you know, there's all this lobbying for the Canadian, the spouses of Canadian citizens and permanent residents to get open spousal work permits. And I've often thought like it's almost a trap because when a permanent resident, this is why I asked earlier, when a permanent resident sponsors a, or a, a spouse from overseas or a common law partner, there's the norm if there's going to be a non-genuineness finding is that it's just found to not meet the requirements of Reg 4, that it's be a genuine marriage, and it goes to the appeal division, whereas in the open spousal work permit for foreign national, like foreign workers or students, um, as you like mentioned, they often are tagging on a misrepresentation finding as well. And where that line between not meeting a regulatory you know, obligation ends and misrepresentation finding starts is pretty unsettled and it's also relatively new because um it's only in the past few years that it seems largely led by the new delhi visa office that i don't think uh, it's exclusively that though i mean i do think i, think I they agree with it. you i think it's elsewhere too now but um yeah even at the ports of that. entry where something like uh you know when we started seeing those cases where applying for admission as a worker when you'd previously come in as a visitor, that that would suddenly start attracting a finding for misrepresentation on the previous visitor admission because of yeah. failure to disclose. But that at least is a finding of a, a like an actual, you know, misstatement as to purpose. Whereas here it's why is one like if why in some contexts is it okay, the marriage is not genuine, refused versus for the exact same application oh and it's also misrep which has huge consequences like you know on the five-year bar and everything i i i don't know how to advise uh i mean beyond at the outset like you know preparing someone really strongly just uh you know don't just submit a uh proof that you're a spouse if you're at a certain visa post especially you've got to include pages of how it's genuine but once the procedural fairness letter has gone out rafina i don't know uh what's your practice been on how to uh how to respond on the a40 allegation specifically the case that i mentioned with regards to the open work permit it, we didn't do the work permit application. Mm. The consultant did it and we didn't, it didn't come to us until it was a big mess until yeah. the wife was applying for permanent residence under the Canadian experience class. And now she's got a spouse who is inadmissible. What do they do? So even though the, um, the notice of ALJR was like a year and a half late, we, challenged the the misrep finding in federal court it was an uphill battle though because of the lack of preparedness and the lack of documentation that was provided and the lack of explanation that was provided i think that going forward and using that experience it's just that much more important um to address the genuineness of the relationship right in the work permit application and as you said provide as much explanation as possible because i think that some visa offices start from the presumption that it's an it's not a genuine relationship yeah. and then everything else unfolds i agree that with that being the default i say to clients that it's a bit of a guilty until proven innocent kind of a uh 
a process, but I think that still the notion of disentangling a genuineness assessment mm-hmm. from a misrepresentation allegation is something quite different. It's quite distinct. So to say we do not believe that the relationship is genuine should be something distinct from saying that you have made a misrepresentation. But if you're the visa officer, where do you like draw the line? Like what would be your sort of threshold for saying, okay, we've gone beyond you can't prove that the relationship was real into your relationship not being real as misrep. Well, the definition in section 40 is that the misrepresentation must be material. And the visa office rationale is that the non-genuineness of your relationship has is material to the application and therefore you've misrepped. To me in a pretty basic common sense kind of way when you're conducting an assessment and somebody doesn't know the details as to where their spouse has traveled what their income might be what their favorite movie is stuff like that what do they do when they're not studying or working i don't know exactly (laughs) so i mean in that sort of a situation that would give rise to a a misrepresentation finding to me it's not it's not like i understand that yes genuineness is part of the overall eligibility assessment and that you know a misleading of the application uh, in of the visa officer in that determination would be material however it's really just um, to me, it seems to be very clear that that's a genuineness assessment, that, that that's not, um, that's, it's a matter of the degree as to whether or not the officer is convinced that the relationship is real. Something quite different from whether or not there's information being put forward that is potentially false <laughs> or that they're omitting information. I mean, to me, there are two kind of different they're they're different characters those those types of um determinations i don't know i mean in that kind of an example it seems pretty um pretty clear like not even in this work permit application in this context the um of the case that we've been discussing today not knowing a whole bunch about your employer and not being able to explain why there's no tracks you know like this is going to the genuineness of the job offer but the idea that you have made a misrepresentation to me it's really it, it goes it falls short of being able to show that they have put forward information that's inaccurate or that um that they have um omitted information that would have closed down an avenue of investigation to use the the jurisprudential language well, my question more generally, and I mean, I, I, I don't know if any of you have any guesses about it, but, but why are we seeing offices and, you know, as Stephen mentioned, led by New Delhi, but now others, visa offices, increasingly making these types of misrepresentation findings in, in cases where they, they can certainly refuse, right? Yeah, like whether sure. it's a non-genuine job offer or a non-genuine relationship, like if they have the basis to refuse, why take this extra step? and make this person inadmissible for five years for misrepresentation. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it goes back to what uh, Deanna said in regards to the consequence of a misrep finding. You're, you know, the hurdles are very high in getting a positive decision after you've been slapped with a five-year ban. Yeah. And maybe there's some rhyme or reason and some research that needs to go into um where these misrep findings are coming from and who's being impacted by them. 
Plus, you know, for five years, you're not going to get another application from that person. So that's exactly. I think that's what it well, is. Well, I think it's also deterrence. I mean, um, we've talked about that on the podcast, that ATIP that I blogged about where New Delhi uh, in 2018 adopted, you know, misrep as a policy of deterrence. Uh, I just think like, and again, we've also talked about how like, you know, there's zero year bar or five year bar and nothing in between. And I mean, I lean to the side that like, I would want overwhelming evidence before barring someone from five years, but like where that line actually gets drawn legally, I, I don't know. I'm not convinced, Deanna, that it's as like, I don't know where that line would be, where someone's saying, you know, doesn't know, can't answer questions that an officer thinks that they should know about their spouse into, okay, well, they have uh, misrepresented that they're in a genuine relationship, like... I don't know where that line is, especially in the context of, um, and it's all entangled, especially with the New Delhi visa office of like arranged marriages already being a concept that I think people who aren't from those you know cultures where that is the norm already have, I think, a bias against it. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know where the line is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's clear, but I do think as a policy stance, I think the idea of using misrepresentation as a deterrent uh, is something that I have a low threshold for, um, you know, and, you know, you're talking about the zero, zero or five, but really, I think, uh, in actual practice, it's zero or kind of forever, unless you're prepared to <laughs> litigate the heck out of any future applications. I just had a three-time go-around uh, judicial review application for somebody who had had already a refusal and a misrepresentation allegation years and years before, before I got involved. Such a obvious case for approval and we had to jr and get it was like back and forth to the visa office and federal court three times before we finally got the trv approval but i mean you have to really be determined to to see something through uh, after that um, has come down because there is such a huge bias against the applicant i find when there's been a misrepresentation finding and i don't think that that's unique to what i've seen i think that that is pretty pretty standard. It does create a huge obstacle to any future application. But um, I just, I think um, it's not a form of inventory control by the visa office and should not be used as that. So I think anything that would be something in terms of a policy direction that would discourage such use, I think a refusal is a refusal and saying that this is not satisfactory. I think that there should be like balance of convenience should definitely lean in favor yeah. of genuineness assessments as opposed to misrep being something as a, a thing of last resort where there's a very clear error or omission, um, not something about you know just basic information being lacking in uh in jandu you mentioned that it wasn't clear to justice diner or to you why some files were misrepped and others weren't did justice provide an explanation like what was their rationale for why this same situation <laughs> resulted in some getting banned for five years others just refused that, that was that was the part of the hearing that was probably the most entertaining and I, I did I did give one example of um you know our colleague going through the GCMS notes and saying well this one here didn't know the distance between um you know Nova Scotia and uh, Ontario 
this this one here, I didn't know how many trucks the company had. I mean, it was just, the, and we were sitting there thinking, oh, good thing we're not in that position. <laughs> Previous <laughs> DOJ counsel, you know, we, we know what it's like to make those types of arguments where you're grasping at straws. Uh, but no, the short answer is no, they couldn't really tell why three <clears throat> were inadmissible for misrep and the other three weren't. We actually went to the trouble in the hearing of comparing the answers from the non-misrep group to the misrep group <laughs> to, to ask the question, what's the difference between these answers that one is bound to have misrepped and one got away? with that finding like how where's the distinction and have the visa officer uh put forward an affidavit in support of the litigation no. that would have been an interesting cross-examination we wanted, we wanted <laughs> the officer yelena didn't i really want the officer yes. to but yeah we were looking forward to a cross-examination but it didn't happen we thought mm -hmm. maybe even a further affidavit from the officer um after leave was granted but no such luck yeah, no, I'm pretty sure DOJ would have advised against that. I think that would have been a hard cross. But In which, group litigation. Which I think also speaks to how problematic these decisions were, because if you, as the decision maker, can't justify the decisions that you made, then why were we in court to begin with? <laughs> yeah. In group litigation like this, when it goes back for redetermination, is it that any officer involved in any of these refusals can't be involved in any of the redetermination. They said it was all one, wasn't it? It's all, all one. Isn't it was all crazy? the same officer. Yeah, which is even more. Mm -hmm. Just the, the the misrep ones had to go to a, a, a second decision maker. Mm. So that that involved two officers. So it's just two two individuals in the New Delhi office. But even that second officer was the same in all of the yeah. misrepresentation huh. cases. And that analysis was lacking because that's the, so, so when we talk about, well, where do you draw the line? So the, the process in place is for one decision maker to look at the application, assess it. If they have concerns and they are contemplating making a misrepresentation finding, they need to involve another officer who will then look at the record and decide if it's misrepresentation or not. So you would think, that that part of the reasons from the second officer gives you the insight as to what why the misrepresentation finding was being made. Well, that that was lacking in this case. There was no explanation. So what the OJ tried to do is they tried to go to the interview notes and and you know pick little bits and pieces out of that to find you know to support the finding that these applicants knew that the job offer was fraudulent. Mm. you know because they didn't know where the trucks were parked or they didn't know the distance between the two offices and, and then of, i mean even the, the idea behind that what's that but none of them knew the answer to no. those questions no of course not and then the idea of long distance truck driving you know the trucks could be in ontario with an office in nova scotia i mean that that is how the industry works right they're driving mm. across the country so what the distance is or where the trucks are parked and whether the applicants know knows this or not <laughs> how does that go towards proving that you know they submitted a non-genuine job offer and it's it's calling upon the applicants to speculate about things um, outside of their own direct knowledge 
no, this was a, a good discussion that I think actually leaves like, I mean, all these new questions that we raised that I wasn't anticipating is a lot of food for thought, like in mm-hmm. a non-ESDC context, who does analyze um, the employer side type questions and where does, you know, non-genuineness end and misrepresentation begin? Yeah, the biggest one for me, honestly, and I'm still wrestling with this one, um, is how does counsel act when facing this type of a PFL? Um, to me, I'm really, I'm really wrestling with this in a way that I haven't in the past. But I think that because we are seeing a different climate in terms of how these applications are assessed and what goes into this genuineness assessment or what could go into the genuineness assessment, um, I feel a little more conflicted about how I might wish to engage with the visa office in the name of the applicant at the, at the work permit determination. Well, especially if there's that inevitable difficult question of the employer of, if I give you this information, can you withhold it from the applicant? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Step further and just sort of provide additional context as to what was driving these cases you know what was the driving force behind all of these cases and it actually was the negative impact on the employer on the canadian company so if we think about um you know in in their example it was because they were then having trouble recruiting um foreign nationals who who could potentially come and work for the company because they were getting a bad reputation because all of these people were getting refused for their work permits Um, And just from that perspective, how do you advise clients, Canadian companies who are potentially considering, um, you know, the temporary foreign worker program as an option? How do you say to them, there's this, you know, first step, the LMIA process, and then comes the work permit application for the worker, Mm -hmm. which, you know, can be refused based on your ability as a company to fulfill the job offers, even though you went through this first step and paid the money. Um, to one government department. And and then not only can it be refused, but your potential worker can be banned from coming to Canada for five years. Uh, But like, it's just for me, it's difficult to grasp because it has such far reaching consequences that I, I mean, I would fully understand why this company says never again to foreign workers. And then how do you fill the labor shortages when there aren't people in Canada to do the work? It's just, I mean, I think that the process requires a lot more. Is there the same issue in Ontario right now as there is in BC, where there's been increased focus on training for long haul or any truck drivers? So like in BC, like a couple weeks ago now, I don't know if you saw the video, Deanna, of the truck that was driving with its like the back lifted and for like at least a kilometer before it plowed into a an overpass. And there've been all these stats on, you know, the increased number of incidents. And I don't know if that is being viewed, like if foreign workers are being viewed as contributory to that, or like the lack of training and skilled people is why people are bring, or companies are bringing in foreign workers. But I've wondered to what extent, like those types of incidents is playing into this as well. I think it's probably a the, an important factor. But Is it the I mean, same in Ontario though, where there's been media coverage on the training for truck drivers here? I haven't seen anything recently, Rafina. I don't know if if you have, uh, but but there's 
there's certainly talk about it when certain cases come up and, you know, it ends up being a temporary foreign worker who's driving yeah. the truck and the wheel has fallen off or, you know, a tragedy has happened where someone has died. You know, it, it comes up as an issue of training and sometimes is linked to, you know, this is a temporary foreign worker, sometimes not. Um, but this is something that I think it's other government departments that need to be yeah. um, assessing this, right? Because if a profession is regulated, then... Yeah certain you know like nurses for example they're not able to get a work permit right mm -hmm. and, and now there's talk of you know whether anything's changing in 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 that area because of the labor shortages but you know if certain professions are regulated then the government needs to put in the requirements so that maybe it is a way of saying no this is not what the temporary foreign work is going to be for Mm -hmm. Because in practice, what, what happens when these truck drivers come in, they don't get in a truck and drive. They have to do the licensing process first. Yeah. So that, that takes us back to the assessment of the work permit application, which is kind of, you know, it's probably because the visa office is assessing their ability to do the work, but really they're going to land, they're going to come to Canada. They're not going to be able to do the work. It's going to take them months to get licensed. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a really good point, just in terms of the cooperation between various levels of government um, and that uh, that for that to be something that is taken on by IRCC as a reason for refusing when, um, you know, because they're trying to make up for what they consider to be a lack of regulation at the provincial level, again, sort of complicates the entire thing. I mean, we're seeing certainly a higher level of refusals with truck drivers in general around language requirements, but again, with a, with a lack of any clear guidance as to what this language level should be. And so again, there's just a lack of transparency on the immigration side of things. And while there might be these drivers, um, you know, for this policy in terms of why they're having a more, um, where they're imposing more severe requirements, again, uh, it's it's one of those where perhaps these policy drivers are leading to a total lack of clarity, a lack of um, transparency, a lack of accountability in the immigration process. Um, you know, it's like this um, strange trickle up yeah. effect. Well, that gets into what, I mean, we haven't uploaded the episode yet, but what Sean was saying regarding, although by the time we upload this, it will be uploaded. The ep mm -hmm. uh, Sean was saying of like the real reasons for refusal that just don't yeah. make it yeah, exactly. And I do, I do feel like we might get these fulsome reasons, but I still feel like sometimes we're just not tangling with the yeah. substantive reasons for refusal. We're instead dealing with these things um, that are peripheral to the decision, but perhaps being motivated by something entirely different. And it does make advising clients and litigating these types of refusals far more challenging. Mm -hmm. Well, Thanks so much for coming on with the mm. top case of 2022. Mm. Maybe we'll see you again next year for the top case of 2023. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it's been, I think it, it'll be interesting to see how it gets cited over the next months and years. Yeah, definitely. Um, and if it really does change, uh, change the approach and jurisprudence regarding two ships passing in the night.
Yeah. And I think I would just sort of uh, call on our listeners to see whether or not others have feedback about how it might have changed their practice in respect of uh, mm-hmm. applying to procedural fairness. That would be something that would be would be interesting to hear back from, from people, because I do think it's one of those uh, unique decisions where it might make everybody reevaluate how they've been doing business up until this point, which is which, which is very interesting. Including the government departments, I hope that this case opens their eyes to how their procedures could possibly be tweaked in order to make it just more efficient for everybody. More efficient and more more transparent. Like that, there's that some of these distinctions that, um, as we've said throughout the podcast today, have been quite blurred. That there is a much more distinct uh, articulation between these different issues genuineness versus misrepresentation you know that sort of thing um you know and also who is the party to the application in terms of like what is being determined in the lmia context and what is being determined in the work permit application because they are different want to get a chiseled look in the jawline sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from juvederm volux xc Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.